You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Katie Kaminsky and I, Niels Kastrolassen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Katie, wonderful to be back with you in the new year. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Good. Things are good. It's cold here in Boston, but, you know, that's January and that's winter. So... <laughs> I'm spending a day in Denmark, and it's pretty cold here as well, I have to say. Now, um, before we do anything else, there's a couple of important things we need to do. And the first thing is, we need to go back in time to after our last conversation, because after I clicked stop record, you told me a really funny story about a doctor near you. So I really want you to share that. It was quite quite amusing. Yeah. So I was, you know, this is a shout out to Niels because like I, I had an appointment at the allergist and I went to the allergist and I had to drive far away and in Waltham, which is not quite in the city. And I go to the allergist and I'm sitting there and the doctor comes in and he goes, are you Katie Kaminsky? And I was like, uh, yes, that's my name. And then he's like, from Top Traders Unplugged? And I was like, wow, really? Yeah. And he's like, I said, he's like, I love Niels. I love the podcast. And I was so excited because I was just so not expecting that at the allergist. So you've got fans everywhere, Niels. It was so cool. I was like, Dr. Morris, thank you. Um, anyway, so uh, that was my story. And it just shows you like, like what this podcast is fun. Like people are learning things about investing and and, you know, even my allergist is up to speed with Top Traders Unplugged. So that's kind of cool. I, ha I had not expected that, Katie, and I, I appreciate you sharing. But, of course, massive shout out to your doctor uh, for being a, a loyal listener. And so maybe when we can reach such a wide audience, uh, we are making a little bit of progress uh, since it is now the 10th year of uh, us talking about trend following on the podcast. Anyways, that's kind of the fun part. And not so fun part, but very important part that I also wanted to, to say is that on this day where we are recording, we're actually recording on a Wednesday this week. I literally just read on LinkedIn something from someone that I know, have known for a very long time, doesn't speak uh, to her very often, but um, Trady Will Zapata, who's been in this industry uh, for as long as I have, just wrote a post uh, sharing that her, her husband, Al, uh, had been diagnosed with uh, a kind of cancer and that she um, is doing a, a wonderful thing uh, to raise uh, money and awareness for what I believe is the Expect Miracles Foundation. She is, uh, in fact, participating in the Boston Marathon this year. And I just want to make, give a shout out to, uh, to Tracy uh, and Al. Uh, wishing them all the best, but also encouraging people to go to the Giving Gain website where you can find um, Tracy's project. And I really uh, encourage everyone to uh, support that. All right. With that said, there's some other different stuff we need to talk about before we get into the really nitty gritty stuff, because I, I always ask you what's been on your radar. And I have a feeling this is a little bit different to the usual topics. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, actually, since Niels and I go way back, we met when I used to live in Sweden. And some people don't know that I have a Swedish husband and I speak Swedish. And one of the things we've gotten the amazing opportunity to do is spend New Year's in Copenhagen. And this New Year's was particularly special. And those who are maybe not familiar with some of the Danish traditions, but every New Year's, one sits around and listens to the queen give a speech to kind of draw forth the exciting things that are going to happen. And I'll tell you, my Danish is quite rocky. I need a lot of subtitles, but I was tuning in. And around six o'clock, um, the Danish queen abdicated on live television. It was so exciting, 52 years under reign. And it was a moment where my Danish grandfather would have been smiling down upon me <laughs> um, um, if from above. And so, Niels, you know, how are your feelings about that? Because that's kind of an exciting and very, you know, rare event that we experienced um, this New Year's. I have to agree. It's a, it's a very important tradition, actually, listening to the Queen every New Year's. And even some, for someone like me who haven't actually lived in Denmark for almost 30 years, uh, it was a massive shock. Uh, and then the coronation was actually this uh, Sunday, so only like three days ago. And there were something like 300,000 plus people showing up to to see this, which is a lot for a relatively small uh, city uh, uh, as Copenhagen is. Um, but what's even more crazy, uh, in my opinion, obviously it's a very personal thing, is that um, this morning, suddenly out of the blue, um, the new king, King Frederick, published a book. Now, the book in itself is probably a shock to many people that they managed to keep that under wraps um, and secret. Um, but what I also found out is that the person who writes the book with him um, and who has written one more book with him uh, a few years ago actually is my former football coach, which I think, what a small world. I did not expect that from the guy who taught me how to play football when I was 10 or 11 years old. Anyway, so quite a lot of personal stuff uh, to to lead out with Katie, which we normally don't do. But I thought, why not make a little bit of a difference and not just talk about all the finance stuff? Well, you said it's only once every 900 years that there's an, been an abdication. I mean, a once in a thou almost thousand year event. I mean, that's big. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, normally the monarchy only changes uh, when someone dies, right? And actually, it's a pretty interesting and, and actually, I think a pretty smart thing for uh, for for Queen Margaret to do is to um, change while she's still alive and can give some hopefully tips to um, to the new king. So, anyways, we'll see how it all plays out. Um, let's move on to the usual subjects uh, where we both feel probably more at home, namely trend following. Uh, off to a little bit of a soft start uh, initially in the first few days, then a little bit of a comeback the last few days, and obviously coming off a year which was not the most trending year, uh, to say the least. I'll ask you a little bit about how you uh, see the beginning of the year, but let me just run through some numbers that I wrote down. The beta 50 index is up 42 basis points, Sokjian CTA up 21 basis points, and the trend Sokjian trend index is up 39 basis points. Um, but the Sokjian short-term traders index is down 51 basis points, which actually ties in quite well with my trend barometer because it had one of the lowest readings that we we're ever going to see at 20 yesterday. And since it is a sort of shorter-term time frame that I use for that, it kind of ties in well with the shorter-term uh, managers struggling a bit. 
Of course, um, MSCI World also down for the year now, uh, 73 basis points, world government bonds. Um, probably, actually, I don't have the data in front of me here. I think it's off a little bit this uh, year. And the S&P 500 also off uh, a little bit this year. Anyways, uh, any thoughts on the first uh, couple of weeks of trading so far? Honestly, it's been very back and forth. I mean, there's just nobody who really has a strong conviction in either direction. Um, and if you look at what's happened since Q4, Q4 was just this massive rally in equities. And then you have a huge consolidation period for trend following where fixed income finally hit its peak and we had the catalyst of the U.S. 10-year at 5%. We had a better CPI number. So it's as if trends kind of shifted to the soft landing narrative and everybody's sitting around wait for, waiting for the world to land and we're not landing yet. So it is really what we're calling sort of more of a bumpy landing scenario. Um, and there's just not a lot of clear trends yet because everyone's sitting there looking for cuts that aren't here yet and, you know, just kind of waiting to see if they over bought overvalued equities as well. So, you know, it's not it's not like there's no clear signal. And look at the data last week. I mean, the CPI data is against the PPI data. And then there's just no can, there's just not an obvious answer. And the market is doing that exact thing. Like it's saying, hmm, yes, that, that's my view on it. And we'll see. Yeah, for sure. It's a bit of a mix, mix bag at the moment. And that's fine. That's just how it, it is meant to be. Now, in terms of our regular programming, um, we do encourage people to send in questions. And I got a whole bunch of them from Paul. But because some of them were quite... Um, detailed uh and there are certain things that we probably can't really talk about uh on the podcast for regulatory reasons uh, i decided paul if you're listening to answer you by email so you should have had it except for the fact that there were a couple of things more broadly some themes that uh, you uh, kind of touched on um that uh, katie and i felt uh, that we could certainly talk a little bit about and so um I'm going to, as usual, prompt you with some uh, ideas, uh, topics to talk about, uh, Katie. And the first thing that um, actually was Paul's uh, question, and that is how you think of the difference between momentum and trend following. So let's start out with that. I, I love that distinction because historically in the academic literature, originally momentum was synonymous with cross-sectional momentum which is a phenomenon that's widely documented since Jagadesh and Titman in 1993. Now, the thing that's interesting about cross-sectional momentum is it's really about persistence in the cross-section of assets, which means that you're in some sense buying the winners and selling the losers with the ideology that that relative outperformance will persist in time. And so that's what momentum trading has sort of built a lot of literature on. Trend falling, which was often seen kind of with disdain by academics, partially because there was maybe not as much good data in futures, they're trickier, um, finally made its debut in around 2013 in the papers with the title Time Series Momentum, which means that you're looking for persistence in the time series so that an asset itself will continue moving in the same direction. It's sort of like the original version of momentum, an object in motion can, continues in motion until it's stopped. And so cross-sectional momentum, which is the more popularized term or momentum, 
is about the relative outperformance. Time series momentum is about following momentum in individual assets across a basket of assets and building a portfolio in that particular way. And I know um, your your uh, one of your, the who, Paul who asked the question. One of his follow up questions was really about dual momentum. And Gary, Gary, I forget his last name, Antonici. Did I get it right? Maybe. I think um, that I because I've, right. I've met Gary and he's written a great book about dual momentum. And what he's really talking about is combining both cross sectional momentum with time series momentum. So you're really sort of not just looking for the persistence in an individual asset, but you're also looking at persistence across assets as well. So there are ways to combine those approaches to incorporate both of those views. Um, and that's momentum. It's things moving in the same direction. It's just a question of the term cross-sectional or time series that really matters. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think for for probably for the most part, I would say um, most of our colleagues would use uh, kind of the absolute momentum trend following type thing. But we also know that some of our friends in the industry are using, uh, you know, trend following on a relative basis. Or, or currency is also um, a lot more cross-sectional. Yeah, exactly. Because there, yeah, no, there is no, there is no sort yeah. of, there's, it's a cross-sectional asset. So there's more cross-sectional signals um, in, in currencies applied and also individual. Well, the thing is you need a good cross-section. So that's the point. Like if you're going to do cross-sectional momentum in bonds and they're much more sort of directional, it, it doesn't work as well. Um, you might need more diversification across your basket. So if you trade only developed bonds, they're all pretty correlated. So you don't have a big cross-section. So you kind of need you need that sort of cross-section for a cross-sectional signal to kind of make sense and the assets to be different enough but similar. All right. So the next thing we wanted to talk about, this was something you brought up uh, as a good thing, is something that you um, uh, you spoke about a number of years ago. And this was definitely you were the first one that I uh, came across uh, talking about it and explaining it in a way that, that, that I could understand it. And it is this kind of difference uh, between convergent and divergent strategies, which is quite important, even though we spend most of our time just talking about one of them, but actually it's very important to understand what both means. Um, so I'd love to um, bring you back a few years uh, to, I think, probably one of many talks you've done about this topic. Um, and maybe you can share a little bit about um, about this. Oh, I, I love that topic. Convergent, divergent is something that uh, Mark Rapinski actually pointed this out to me or because he wrote some, he writes articles about it. And when I read his article, is this like a light bulb went off? I was like, Wow, that's it. Because we spend a lot of time talking about the mechanics, the how and the what, but we don't talk a lot about like the why, the philosophy, the implicit belief in an investment strategy. And this approach actually really sort of distilled what trend following was doing and what certain strategies and investment were doing down to an ideological approach, which then, you know, the rest is mechanics. So I was really excited about this topic. I wrote, I did a TED talk in in a nuclear reactor in Sweden in 2013 on the Zoom, uh, which is super fun. It's It was deactivated, so it's good. But, um, and then um, I also found, look, looking at before coming to talk to you today, there's a great podcast I did for the CME group in 2014. And I listened to that podcast again. And I was like, oh, I got excited all over again. So Maybe we can just do a short synopsis of what convergent divergent is, um, just to kind of give 
some insights for those of you out there that haven't seen this approach or thought about this as a way to think about risk-taking in financial markets. So what's interesting about risk-taking is that it's not really about one risk. It's about repetitive choices. So every day we take risks over time. And it's how we decide to think about those risks that actually defines whether or not we're convergent or divergent. So when it comes to risk, it really is about three things. One is our beliefs. Second is our perspectives. And third is our past experience. So all of those things come together to help us to decide, you know, should I cross that street? Should I not? Should I take this position in Bitcoin? Should I not? Um, and so those three things come together to help us to decide how to make a decision. And so if we divide the world into two very very segregated views, one being convergent, the other being divergent, a convergent risk-taking approach is where you have this view of the world as being stable, somewhat dependable, relying on sort of some symbiosis. So for example, if you think about fixed income, you look at you know, economic data and you say, well, look at the GDP, look at this, look at that. All of these things add up. We should have cuts. Look at the dots. You, know, you kind of have a view that the world is stable and it's kind of in some sort of equilibrium that you can depend upon. Now, if you're a divergent risk taker, you have sort of this view that Maybe the world is actually non-dependable and very random and stuff happens that you just can't predict and that are hard. So you never really know what the next big, big breakthrough is. So you need to kind of accept that you don't know. It's accepting the unknowable. Um, and so these two views are very, very different. So imagine the person who's convergent, who's like, oh, there's a symbiosis, everything's good. And the divergent person who's like, hey, anything can happen. Where is the exciting next big thing? So a convergent risk taker, let's think about how they would take risks over time. They are, whenever they win, so when they win, they're like, I was right, I told you. They, you know, kind of confirms what they thought was going to happen. But when they lose, they think, well, this is coming back. So they double down. So they tend to kind of double down when things go against their beliefs. And then they take profits when they think they're right. A divergent individual is going to have the exact opposite perspective. When they lose, they're going to say, I don't know what's going to happen next. Let's move on to the next big thing, because this obviously isn't that. And when they win, they're going to say, oh, I found something exciting. Let's keep going. So it's really a very different view about how you think about risk. And what's really cool about divergent and convergent is they have very different return profiles, right? So Convergent has lots of small wins, and occasionally when they're wrong, big negative losses. Like, they just got it wrong, right? They just assumed that there was going to be cuts, and they never came, for example, uh, in the finance suite. And Divergent, on the other hand, is going to have lots of small losses and occasionally a really big win when they capture something that they didn't expect. I'm thinking of the yen trade last year. Okay, um, for example. Okay, so what's really cool about this convergent divergent is you can actually think about that in how you approach different types of risk taking in life. So not just finance, but things like social networking, things like private equity, other things are really about sort of what is your risk profile? How are you thinking about taking risk? So let's take the example of social networking, which is one of my favorites. 
Your convergent risk taker is a person who stays with a close-knit group, doesn't want to venture out, and sort of nurtures those relationships. Your divergent social risk taker is your, you know, your your common social butterfly, your person that makes all these new connections. Yeah, yeah, so that meets all these cool new people and eventually finds the next big deal, et cetera. So in hedge fund world and asset management, when we turn these two different risk-taking approaches together, you can see that a strategy like trend following or is a very divergent strategy because it's a strategy where you're systematically cutting your losses when things are not going in that direction of the trend. And when trends are increasing, you're following that trend regardless of a belief system, but just based on you're finding some interesting opportunity. And that's where this huge issue is as a trend follower that people are always asking me. I mean, I got this asked on Bloomberg Radio yesterday, and you could probably hear me balking on it. I was like, they're like, how many cuts? And I'm like, they want a number. And I'm like, three, two, four? I mean, I'm a trend follower. However many cuts there are, I'm going to follow the price. So it is hard for me to make a comment like that because I can dissect what's happening, but I do not predict and I don't have a view of the world. I have a view that the world is changing and that we are going to follow those trends where they are. Um, And so I think what's really exciting when I learned about this convergent, uh, divergent approach, and thanks again to Mark for kind of, you know, writing some articles on it. It just changed the way that I saw trend following as a strategy. It just made sense. It's like it works when the world is divergent. It works when things change in ways we don't like, don't expect, and don't want. But it doesn't work as well when the world is convergent. And guess what? We've gone through a very convergent world last year. We got to peak inflation. We stopped cutting we're going back to normal. Everybody thinks we stopped raising. We, started, we stopped raising. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Raising. I switched in. I'm, I messed up. We stopped um, raising the rate. I've been talking about cuts so much. I'm just mixing it up. Sorry, <laughs> it's okay. So we're in. And in, in our yearly note, I wrote about this. It's it's about a year of consolidation, consolidation, getting back to normal, finding that soft landing that everybody wants. You know, like so in a convergent world. Divergent strategies take a lot of losses because they have false starts. In a divergent world, like a situation what happened in Ukraine, what happened in COVID, what happened during, um, you know, this massive flux of inflation, that's a very divergent environment. It's not fun for people that are used to things working like they used to. In fact, it's very divergent. Um, so that's why this is a good review of this topic. I mean, I was excited to like, oh, listen to the podcast from 2014. Still relevant today. So that's, that's good. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. And um, yeah, and I'll certainly, um, I'll remind Mark about this when he comes back on the on, on the podcast in a, in a few weeks and that uh, he's a great source of inspiration on that topic. The other thing, a couple of things that are important maybe to just add to this um, and that is, uh, I just released today, actually, a conversation uh, with Jim and Dave Dredge. And um, and they both come from kind of the vol side of things. And it's a really must-listen-to conversation, I think, when you get those two uh, together. But what what uh, what Dave said, and, and uh, I've heard him say before, and it is really important, 
it's usually not what you know that is risky that causes you to go belly up. It's what you think that is not risky, and then you add leverage to it. And that's often what happens in the banking system, as we saw in March of last year, for example. And it really speaks to this risk of of convergent strategies or philosophies uh, about what you think for sure is right. Uh, while we, of course, from the uh, trend-following side, um, uh, completely admit and adhere to the knowing what you don't know uh, philosophy. Now, the next topic, because we wanted to start out with three kind of key concepts to talk a little bit about. So we've done the momentum versus trend-following, we've talked convergent versus divergent, but the next thing that you wanted to um, talk a little bit about is, um, and I think this is actually quite important because there is some, I wouldn't say confusion, but... um, but there's some some gray area, and that is what does the term pure trend mean, and and in this case mean for you? Um, yeah. So I I love that question because I get it a lot, and um, for me, in the purest form, and especially if you read my book with Alex Krazerman, we talk a lot about this this idea of pure trend, um, the concept that. As a trend is measuring higher, you increase your position. So this concept where conviction links to position sizing. Um, Now, this is a very abstract concept because depending on how you implement the strategy, you might have certain variations of it that can look a little bit different or may not be linear in terms of their response function. But what to me pure trend is, it's really about following the price moves and really using the market movements and prices as the pure basis of your position sizing. And what that means from a perspective of, you know, ideologically, from a divergent perspective, you're not adding any of your beliefs into any convergent beliefs into the system. So adding things like a carry signal, adding other strategies from a philosophical approach is kind of like combining a little bit of convergent views with your divergent view. So a purely divergent strategy would be a pure trend strategy that doesn't incorporate um, any sort of more views-based assumptions. And the reason this is important is historically through most crisis periods, and this is why I like that term crisis alpha, for example, is anytime things are really, really difficult and changing and unpredictable and unknowing, historically throughout time, trend following, pure trend following, is usually the best to react to those changes. Not to predict them, but to react in the wake of those changes. Um, And this is why oftentimes investors are interested to understand, are you pure trend or not pure trend? Because when those moments occur, when things get challenge, when the convergent views are put to question. That's often when convergent strategies do not react as well to that type of change. And so having a pure trend strategy is usually the first line of defense. I thought it was so interesting in 2022 and also COVID that trend was the only strategy that actually did well during the period of COVID. Um, why? Because it was following short en- energy positions and long bond positions moving very drastically. It got hit by equity moves, but there were such strong trends that were in the market moves that really were able to be captured by trend and really no other hedge fund strategy was able to waver 
Um, except for even Vol, I think. Um, I think Vol did okay, but not in 2022. Well, it did okay in, in March of 2020 for sure, but it very much depended on when you monetized your positions, I think, in the Vol space. But yeah, so that's a different story. I think that's for me a pure trend is somebody who's willing to have that divergent approach and sort of trying to stay consistent uh, with that. And that's the type of strategy that reacts the best generally during a period of dislocation whether it's an equity crisis or a bond crisis or a geopolitical crisis or an inflation crisis, it's about really sort of following the price moves as the market figures out what the new direction is. So I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here because I know that some of our really good friends in the trend-following space who are listening to this conversation will be upset with me if I didn't bring up this point. Um, and we're only a few days into 2024, and it is one of those topics that will never die. And this is, you know, so here's the thing. I completely agree with you. If you don't contaminate your signal, you can be a pure trend follower. But then the quote-unquote classic trend followers will then argue, well, hang on. What about the risk management? If you start using some kind of measure of correlations or measure of volatility as the trade um, takes off, you may adjust your positions up or down uh, during that trend. And are you then, in their opinion, you're not pure trend, but in my opinion, you probably still are pure trend, but but I'm more interested in your opinion. So I love these type of questions because there is a lot of nuance. And I think when it gum comes down to your risk, risk management process and how much risk you take over time, because we just talked about this with Divergent, for me, risk management has the ability to unravel pure trend falling behavior. And it doesn't happen all the time, but it's always a way that you know sort of your you have to manage uh, your process. But let me just give an example of one that I really find um, surprising that some people do, and that's constant risk targeting. Constant risk targeting means that you take your trend signal and you always take 10% vol, for example, and you target to the 10% vol. So the challenge with this, what I find with that, is that when your signals are high, guess what? You dial them down. When the signals are low, you dial them up, and you've actually added a convergent risk-taking approach into your approach, which basically is converging back um, to sort of the average signal. It turns out over long time horizons, they do relatively similar in their back tests, but during extreme environments, they have very different profiles. And so that's exactly, that is right. Like the question that you're getting is an, is one of those idiosyncratic detail-oriented things that we have to think about as trend followers and we build our systems. How do we creep in any convergent behavior based on things like measuring as correlations or targeting risk to a certain amount? How do we sort of balance between those assumptions or not and remain as agnostic as we can if we're pure trend followers? And I think that I think that's true. I would agree with that. However, I think that in all of this detail, I think sometimes it is um, not fully appreciated that I don't believe that that many firms will target a specific volatility of the program. I think some do. I don't think a lot, but I do think a lot of uh, managers will have some kind of risk framework that they, I wouldn't say target, but that they want to stay within um, and where the positions will still be dynamic, but it doesn't mean that you can't capture the big outliers. Um, and and so 
I think that maybe there are three categories, uh, people who don't change their positions whatsoever. And then there are these two groups that may change their positions over time. Um, but one is more, as you said, uh, prone to to introducing convergent type uh, risk taking, while the other one is, I, in my opinion, as divergent as the classic guys. Um, it's just a different approach. Anyway, we'll get a lot of um, comments social in social media on this, Katie. So we can we can continue the well, conversation. No doubt. I just the only one thing I would say is that there's also sort of prudent risk management, which is really thinking about, you know, you don't want a huge position in Italian bonds, for example. Maybe you want like a reasonable size position in Italian bonds relative to the others. So there's a difference between your risk posture, which is what I would call it, and sort of like, you know, adjusting risk aggressively. Um, there's a whole spectrum. I think you put it very well is that there's the much more sort of extreme, less risk management than they're sort of having a, a consistent risk posture where you understand exactly how much risk you have, say, in each uh, asset class and each you're kind of setting guardrails on on the position sizing, which is really about diversification of the portfolio more than sort of trying to limit too much uh, those positions. Um, and then there's sort of more extreme like concert risk targeting that I was just explaining where your risk management strategy could actually inc incorporate some convergence. Yeah, yeah, completely agree with that. All right. The next thing uh, we wanted to do today was to review a few themes from 2023. Obviously, when I say we, I use the royal we because it really means you. And so I, uh, I'm curious to, uh, to learn a little bit more about your observations. I know you're working on one of your uh, brilliant papers coming out uh, soon, which is probably a review of 2023, perhaps. Um, so talk about that. Talk about what are the things you found in preparing this uh, paper and, and yeah, Go wherever you want to go. Yeah. So looking back over 2023, it was a very challenging year in many ways. Um, but what's interesting and most people don't know is that the impact of rare events was spectacularly large, particularly the SVB uh, regional banking crisis. But second of all, um, we are still seeing sort of the residual end of that inflation trade dissipating into new themes. Um, and we still also saw short bond positioning be profitable for parts of the year against the common norms, um, only to sort of consolidate in Q4. But in the middle of the year, you really saw that short bond trades still having legs until October, I think it was October 15th or something, when when the 10-year hit 5%, right. yeah. <laughs> something like this. Um, and you know, we highlighted a couple of interesting facts. I think the things that always stick out to me are the statistical, empirical properties that we see in markets. First of all, fixed income volatility is up 50% still from stationary levels prior to 2020. So everyone is, what's interesting to me is everyone's saying, okay, everything's going to go back to normal. Everything's fine. And I'm like, the stats are not there for you yet. Bond vol is still high, still very high. Secondly, stock bond vol correlations have also continued to be positive. So we're still in sort of a very different regime for fixed income than we were during the great moderation and pre-COVID. And so to me, as somebody who cares about the data and the empirics, I haven't seen evidence that we're back to the great moderation yet. 
I think we are just waiting to see what the next leg of uh, the fixed income trade and the next leg of this particular interesting period of history plays out to be. Um, and so for us, that's really sort of a some sign that even in the data and the short term data that things haven't changed back to normal yet for us. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more um, and for sure. And I think what's actually quite interesting is just I was looking at some sector attributions uh, on our side um, comparing 2022 to 2023. And of course, most people know that 2022 was an incredibly strong year, both for the long bond sector, but also for the short rates uh, sector. Uh, and actually looking at it, very little give back. Um, and maybe one of them was actually positive even in 2023. Uh, so uh, I think that's quite remarkable uh, for the strategy to have been able to ride through a couple of, as you say, some really um, abrupt uh, reversals, uh, both in March and uh, October, November time, um, but still doing okay when, as, you know, when the year was over. Um, there are lots of other things that were challenging, but, you know. Well, Niels, two things we wanted to point out there is that we showed in this paper March 10th and March 13th were the second and 11th worst days in the SG Trend Index since inception. So it turned out, and we looked at the number of positive and negative days by asset class, each asset class had more than 50% positive days on the year for trend. But on average, the trend index was down and this is because if you take out those two days from 2023, it actually flips performance for the index from negative to positive, <laughs> which is kind of like, you know, amazing. We talked about negative skew, that those were difficult days um, for cross asset sell offs and that they came very quickly. Um, you talked about drawdowns. For me, what was interesting about the fixed income drawdowns is they were not slow. They were very long trends with big fall offs. So fixed income is tricky. It's an asset that we're not used to dealing with on the short side. And it gave us some reminders of why the short side is a very particularly interesting side to be on in fixed income. Um, yeah. I think we might talk about that a little bit later today from one of the other papers. One thing I can add to the conversation here is that on our side, once a year, we run a generic trend portfolio, as most managers do, not something that is exactly what we do in our real uh, client portfolios, something pretty close. And we do a simple exercise where we want to see how different uh, look-back periods performed. And we started doing this. We go back to year 2000, uh, where the Sockton uh, Trend Index started. And actually, I will say, 2023 looks completely different to all of the other years, uh, where normally you find kind of a cloud of re reasonably good, we do it by sharp, but reasonably good sharp ratios once you get past 100-day look back. Uh, last year, it was all red. <laughs> Nothing worked in this portfolio with the markets we trade uh, uh, once you get past 100 days. And there was a very little bit of short-term time frame, shorter-term time frames, I should say, uh, that posted something that probably could be a little bit of a positive year, but it was, it just looks so different. So I, I agree with you. I don't know how you looked at the year, but I agree with you. It is a very outlier year, uh, even though the performance 
actually wasn't, uh, yeah, okay, a bit of dispersion between managers plus minus 10% or so, depending on vol. But um, overall, the trend index was down 4% after having made 28% the year before. So nothing, nothing concerning. But then when you look at the details a bit, it's, whoa, this is different. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because our CIO, Alex Healy, um, he was showing me this interesting graph the other day where he looked at correlation across performance or correlation across window performance, and it was the lowest in history last year. And so what that suggests to me is that there was just a lot of consolidation, a lot of turbulence, a lot of, you know, it wasn't an easy year to be following trend signals, particularly because of the reversals in Q1 and Q4. Um, but ironically, Q2 and Q3 were quite positive trending environments. And on average, positive days were more than 50% in all asset classes, which to me is kind of a strange combo. So um, so it was a weird year. Yeah. And the recovery from the SVP event was pretty strong. We'll see. I think probably we may have started the recovery from the... Um, I always refer to it that CPI number in November that just seems to have you know changed everything, uh, even though it was a very um, suspicious number that we got. But anyways, um, we'll see how the recovery goes uh, into uh, 2024. Anything else you want to add to this, or do you want to jump into the fixed income paper that uh, you listed? Yeah, I think I you know another thing I was thinking about at the end of this year, and it's also in this paper, is drawdown recovery, um, and. This was interesting. We just did a very, and anybody can do this analysis, not hard. Basically, take the SG trend index, and if you look at the rolling one year past return and the rolling one forward year return, and you look at averages over different values. So minus 10 to minus 15% is, you know, a, one of the worst periods for the SG trend index. Plus 30, plus 20 is some of the good years for trend on a rolling window basis. If you look at returns, which is not surprising if you think about the philosophy of the strategy, when you're at the 25 to 30 something percent range, the average return is much lower than average. So once you've caught that trend, some of the persistence on average typically has has gotten into the price. There's perhaps so only so far that prices can move. But on the other hand, when we've been in a drawdown, particularly larger drawdowns, we tend to on average have slightly higher than average performance. So it really fits with this idea of waiting for the next big move. And that's how trend is. It's cutting your losses, cutting your losses until you have a really big divergent change in markets. And so I think that's what we're looking for this year is what is the next catalyst? What's the next big move after a year where you saw consolidation um, in trends? And so I think for us, when we don't, uh, we don't suggest ever, or I never suggest timing in managed future strategies, but there is some some humbleness and understanding when you've had a 35% year, like that's pretty good. Um, so, you know, it's really thinking about or 25% year, it's that you've caught that big diversion trend. And, you know, there is always usually a period of consolidation ex post. And that's kind of what Q4 felt like and Q1 last year. So, um, uh, so yeah, upwards no, and onwards, right? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and actually on that note, uh, Mike Melisinas, uh, who works with Jerry, he wrote a nice little LinkedIn post where he looked at, and this is from memory, I think he looked at rolling 12-month periods for the 
Barclays CTA index. Um, and uh, once it had been down on a rolling one-year period, which it ended, I think, or thereabouts in the last uh, month or so. Um, and then he looked at the um, following 12 months return or something like that. Anyways, it paints an interesting uh, picture without a doubt. Um, so uh, nice of him to 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 share that. All right, uh, let's move on to the um, to the fixed income paper, um, which I think we originally actually I thought we were gonna talk mostly about, but then all these other great uh, topics came up. But let's give it let's give it a go. Well, so we wrote another paper just kind of talking about it was such a huge trend short fixed income. Um, it was nine quarters of net short signals for trend following in fixed income. And that's one of the longest runs of short positioning and trend for 20 plus years. So it's, it was it was a it was a big short position. Um, and what was interesting to that is that if you look at the yield curve and what's happened, we are also kind of highlighting that there's kind of three phases to the fixed income trade. The first is the inversion, the beginning of the rising rate cycle. The second phase, empirically, is that flattening of the yield curve. And finally, there's the stabilization or the steepening of the yield curve. And it felt like, and what was interesting about the original paper that we wrote about this, trend tends to be short in the inversion, does well. When things flatten out, it tends to be more likely to be short, but it doesn't tend to do as well. So it's a little more mixed, which sounds a little bit like last year. And then finally, when you get into the steepening of the yield curve, you're going to tend to see long signals. Um, and you're going to see trend being more likely to be long in a steepened yield curve or normalized yield curve environment. And what's interesting, those are empirical studies connected to our experience in the last three years. And what's interesting, looking at 40 or 50 years of data, we're seeing the same type of patterns and trend signals in terms of how they behave today than we saw over the last 40-year period. Um, and so what we were saying really in this paper is that we're starting to see, we've seen trend signals shift to long, um, and we're waiting for that stabilization of the yield curve this year. And you're probably going to see that story of us being long again, more likely than short, more often like it has been for some period of time, at least if empirical patterns persist and we have something similar to history. Um, so that was, it's just very the interesting. The only danger, if not 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 to uh, get you out of your your groove here, but but I just want to add maybe add one thing, and that is, of course, every time we look at data going back 40, thereabouts years, we do know we are looking at an environment that generally speaking is was a one-way street. Um, so it, again, just to... On, you know, emphasize the fact that we don't forecast anything. I mean, if interest rates, you know, turn around and start going up again, we'll just follow that uh, as, as it, as it yeah, comes. Yes. So in this paper, we actually looked at interest rates going back to the 60s. And we needed to because we needed to have that, you know, very different behavior. And a lot of people don't understand as well. If you look at the 70s for fixed income, there's two things that are true. Number one, volatility is higher in bonds. And number two, Stock bond correlation is positive. And guess what? We're actually there. And so that, I mean, there's some rhyming. I'm not saying we're in the same scenario, but I'm saying that this is not a weird phenomenon that could be transitory, to use a popular term. It could be a period where we have that, you know, higher bond vol for longer. Um, that was one of the things that we pointed out in the end of last year is that, you know, maybe one of the jokes I made in 2022 is I said, 
people realize that stock that bonds have downside volatility. <laughs> so, and then I said, oh, now people realize that bonds are actually risky. Um, so the vol has actually increased quite a bit in bonds. And the swings on a daily basis are much higher than they've been in so long as well. So, you know, for me, it's really that this asset class has gone into a new regime. And the next phase of that, if we look empirically, is probably a, a stabilization, uh, which means we're likely to be long um, instead of short, even though the short trade was exciting for nine nine quarters. But uh, we're finally in a different phase, it seems like. I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, clearly there are two things that kind of drives our signals. One is the actual kind of movement of the spot price. The other is the roll yield, um, so the curve. And I don't know if you remember, but back in the 60s, because I've never looked at that, but back in the 60s and maybe early 70s, uh, how would trend runnels generally be be positioned during that? Because I, I have no idea what the curve looked like uh, back then. Oh, this is a good point. Um, actually, we've looked at this and it's generally not good to be short fixed income because you, of the roll yield and because of like, you know, the negative carry associated with this. Unless spot prices move drastically. And that's what's happened, right? Like, look at bond prices. They moved so much that who cares about the roll yield? <laughs> so I think that's the point is in history. If you look at the roll yield, it it's sort of like, it's like a headwind, right? So, you know, it makes you a little bit less likely to be short fixed income. But if NPV values or values of bonds is dropping drastically, the trade-off there is, is clear. Like, if bond prices move enough, the roll yield doesn't matter. And that's what you see in the historical data is that there's always that negative carry, that negative view. Because, I mean, selling bonds means that you have to provide the coupon. But if bonds are just crashing, the NPV change is much, much bigger than that of that you know, negative yield. Um, and that's what you see when the yield curve is inverted. That type of opportunity far outweighs um, the negative carry. The magnitudes is what you have to look at because ideologically, it seems like, why would you ever want to short something that has positive coupons, right? But you would if it's really like plummeting in value. And that's really those environments where you have an inverted yield curve where bonds are selling off uh, drastically where you would still want to be short. Yeah. And by the way, you mentioned earlier the correlation between stocks and bonds, which I think a lot of people, certainly if they came into finance around the year 2000, thought, oh, that's always going to be negative. It's the perfect match and risk parity, obviously. Uh, it, it's not a coincidence that that got invented in 2003 or thereabouts by uh, Bridgewater. Um, but actually, uh, I don't know if it's from your paper, but I've seen other papers or charts where once you do like a rolling correlation, three-year correlation, it has been positive for a very long time, and it really is those two decades from 2000 to 2019 that sticks out as being the really odd one out. Um, so uh, I think investors need to go and, and just have a, a rethink of, of that side of things in their portfolio, whether they're really getting the uh, comfort level um, from a quote-unquote 60-40 type allocation uh, that they expect in this new environment. Well, think about it. I mean, where does that negative stock bond correlation come from? Like people think about when bond stocks are down, bonds are safe. If bonds are riskier, are they that safe? Like, and if your government has tons of them and a surplus of them and like there's way too much, you know, debt, is it as safe as you used to think it was? I don't know. Maybe that's part of the underlying problem. In those moments of crisis, it still has been a flight to safety trade. And that's what happened in Q1 last year with the SVB event. 
But on a regular basis, bonds are clocking in with much higher vol. And it was pretty short-lived because bonds went on to make new lows after the SVB event. So, uh, yeah, it does tell you something. Now, in the interest of time, uh, I just wanted to make sure we cover some of the other things. Um, you had. Oh, did you have more thoughts you wanted to share on the fixed income paper? Do you want to move on to some of your... You did some media work last week. Um, you have some general views maybe you want to share. And of course, uh, both of us and Alan, I think, actually will be in Miami in a couple of weeks. So if anyone wants to come and say hi, maybe we should find a little place um, to have a coffee. Sounds good. At MFA. Sounds good. <laughs> um, yeah, MFA, I mean, of course. Yeah. So it's very, one of the things that's interesting with being a trend follower, it's so hard sometimes because people will always ask me, um, you know, what do you think is going to happen this year? And that's going to be a very discretionary question, right? But when you look at the markets on a regular basis and you're following a trend signal, you're you're always trying to distill, like, what does your positioning mean, right? And so that's why I always find it interesting to answer those questions, because sometimes I either disagree or sometimes I'm conflicted, on what the market is actually telling me right now. Um, and right now, looking at the market going forward, some of the key things that we think, um, we always tend to think that people underestimate uh, and are overly optimistic. Well, that's a very convergent view. So for example, that they're way more excited about the cuts this year and that they're going to happen fast. My view is if they happen fast, it's because something bad happened. And I don't think that's good. So you know, my general view and talking with, you know, how we think about things is that there is definitely a lot more volatility on inflation and on growth this year that is going to create a much wider range of outcomes than people actually are anticipating. So I'm calling it a bumpy landing as opposed to a soft landing or hard landing. Because soft landing is like when you go to the airport and just you glide right in. And a hard landing is like when you, this happened to me once when I was going to to Florida and I remember there was a hailstorm and you, <laughs> that's a hard landing, right? But the truth is, is like, don't, when you go flying, like it's usually somewhere in between, like you hit some turbulence and you, so I think we're in for that. We're going to have these swings of over-optimism, under-optimism and back and forth this year as we try to figure out are we actually in a new regime or is everything going back to the great moderation and no problems? I'm a little skeptical on that. But Your little aviation uh, analogy reminds me of a flight I had only a few months ago. I mean, it was so bumpy um, that we had to do a go around. He simply couldn't get the plane down on the, on the runway. So I'm not sure what we call that. It was both bumpy and with a go around. And uh, maybe that's actually what we will have. Uh, you know, we'll realize that maybe... Inflation is coming back and we need to do a little bit more work before we can have uh, uh, this um, return to uh, to more calm waters. Time will tell. Anything else, um, Katie, uh, that you want to talk about today? Well, I think, I mean, that was sort of our view on this year is sort of that there we're in a period of drawdown recovery. It's been a period of consolidation. And we're in some sense waiting for the next big signal. And the data is not telling us anything clear yet what about commodities by the way because a lot of people are, i mean a lot of smart people have been calling for the next big bull market in commodities it's not quite playing out that way but that's not to say that it couldn't happen no it hasn't come yet it hasn't come yet um no i mean trend signals on average are short 
in uh, commodities still, but there has been sort of this tug of war between geopolitical tensions and demand dissipation in the energy sector. Um, my view is that, you know, we should watch the commodities because if they start popping back up again, it could give you an idea of a cycle starting again. That's kind of what happen ha generally happens is commodities go first, filters through the system. Um, I've been watching them, but they've been hard to trade. They've been very bumpy. Um, well, they've been hard to trade some of them. And then, then, then a few others like the grains have actually been reasonably uh, well behaved to the short side, but of course, surprisingly to the short side, maybe for some, but uh, yeah, time will tell. It's um, it's interesting, but it's also what makes it so valuable to have the opportunity set to go wherever the trends occur. Meaning we're not we're not stuck in a in a small sandbox uh, where we can only play with financial markets, um, so to speak. I think it's time's gonna tell. That's what January is. It's exciting because anything can happen, right? I mean, it's a new year, new new king for Denmark. A new king for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, good stuff. Now I think this is a, this is a good place to 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 wrap it up. I will just before I leave again, just uh, give a shout out to the conversation I just published today. Literally, because it is also related to what Katie and I have been talking about today, namely uh, the year twenty twenty four. And both uh, Jim and Dave had some interesting observations and actually quite relevant also for the topic of whether or not you should have trend following in a portfolio when you think about some of the. Uh, things they were talking about. Um, if you like these conversations, as I always ask people for, and that is to go and support the podcast by uh, leaving a rating and review on uh, Apple, Spotify, wherever you go, listen to your podcast, of course. Uh, we certainly appreciate that. And of, co of course, also sharing it with your own followers, um, colleagues, family, um, whoever you think might uh, enjoy and benefit from this content. And uh, next week, I'll be joined by Alan. And so this uh, is your chance to ask him some questions, um, you know, maybe about allocations overall. Obviously, that's really uh, what he's been doing um, for a big chunk of his uh, career. If you have an email, uh, if you have a question, you can email them to info at toptradersonplug.com. Um, and as mentioned, maybe Katie and I will see some of you uh, in Miami in a couple of weeks at the MFA conference. So we'll certainly try and hook up with Alan because he's also going to be there. Um, and that could be fun. So from Katie and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.